Please be advised that this episode contains content that may not be appropriate for all ages. What is one of the factors that could potentially have the most impact on your child's future health? Is it sleep habits, diet, physical activity? I mean, those are important, but there is one factor I'm not sure you've thought about. This might get a little edgy and dark, but it's critically important. And it's exposure to abuse. Everyone is aware of physical and sexual abuse that occurs within a home. It's tragic and it's shocking. These are crimes that are perpetrated by someone in a child's own home. And there's quite a lot known about factors that lead to child abuse. And you do have some control over this. But what about when abuse of a child occurs by an older child or adult outside of the home? That's called institutional child abuse or out-of-home abuse. You're familiar with this because of media coverage of huge abuse cases within organizations like churches and scouts. And maybe you think you know how to protect your child from this, but you don't. It's far more common than anyone knows. Estimates go as high as one in five children. As you'll find out in this episode, nobody really knows how common abuse is when it occurs on sports teams, in schools, at tutoring services. Here's the most crazy part of all of this. One of the biggest problems is that many kids don't know they're being abused. From a young age, kids are taught to respect adults and authority figures, especially those who are responsible for a child's health and safety. The majority of cases of institutional child abuse are not reported until a child becomes an adult. And most perpetrators have over 20 victims. It's not uncommon to have as many as 100 victims before they're discovered. This is the most overlooked form of child maltreatment. Even when I researched this issue, I found there is almost nothing written or studied about this topic. Every one of us can play a role in preventing this kind of abuse. I interviewed Loxie Gant, who herself is a survivor, and now she is a passionate advocate for preventing institutional child abuse. She will share everything you need to know to protect your children when they are in the trusted hands of other adults. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. We can protect children by being aware of what to look for and by being vigilant. As we've seen, corruption and a culture of cover-up has led to large-scale cases of child abuse in public and private education, churches, and Boy Scouts. And these cases are just the tip of the iceberg. Loxie Gant is an expert in institutional child abuse and founder of the Coalition for Institutional Child Abuse Prevention. I asked her to explain the problem. How common is institutional child abuse? There's a lot of statistics. The hard thing is, if you've ever met anyone or if you have anyone in your life that was a victim of child abuse of any kind, a lot of them don't go reported. So unfortunately, we don't have very clear statistics. However, if you were to gather up a group of you and four friends, I can guarantee to you that one of you was sexually abused at some point in time in your lifespan between the ages of five and 18. Nobody really knows for sure how common this is, but when surveying adults about their childhood, it appears that one in five children experience some form of abuse. 
Institutional child abuse, which is what we're talking about, can come in any form of maltreatment. It can be physical or emotional abuse, though historically, abusers use their status to coerce victims into sexual abuse. This usually occurs through a process of grooming, which at times may also include grooming the parents to trust the adult. These are very persuasive, charming people, and they are abusers. Child sexual abuse does not always involve physical interaction. It can be sexual communications with something like texting. I read one report about a series of athletic coaches contacting their student athletes through Snapchat, and apparently this is not uncommon. Abuse can also be in the form of an abuser exposing oneself or masturbating in front of a minor. If this kind of experience is so common, why isn't it reported more often? Why don't we hear about it? Here's what Loxie shared. You don't report things because you're scared of what people would think. You're scared of blowback, repercussions. Also, as children, some children may be abused and sexually abused without even knowing that it's abuse. Those boundaries are so thin and narrow uh, that it's interesting about how we can decide what that threshold is between regular behavior, grooming, and abuse. But the main thing is you'd think that they would be come up on a child registry, that you could somehow check one of the lists in your state and that person would be registered. Unfortunately for that case, we do know that 19.5 victims happen before a perpetrator is reported to law enforcement for the first time. Besides not even realizing they're being abused, there's so many other components and factors that go into play. We've heard about quote-unquote grooming, and a lot of people don't actually know what that term means. Grooming is a process of blurring lines and bridging boundaries that somehow lead someone to be able to do something to a child that either the child or their parents would not know about, find out about, or be able to report to law enforcement. So this goes on in a lot of ways. And what we know mostly about grooming and the way we speak about it in child sexual abuse is that once a person makes a contact with your kid, we do know that 99% of child sexual abuse happens by someone the child knows on a first name basis. This means they call them Joe, uncle, they call them Mr. Steve, they call, even it could be first name, we also say Mr. Jones, pastor this, whatever. It's someone that they know. The whole idea of what you and I were taught as children was this concept of stranger danger. Unfortunately, that was completely misplaced because that's only 1% of child abuse. Those are those kidnappings, the guy in the van, a child being abducted. Those are so rare and few and far between, including someone that the child doesn't know on a first name basis. That's an even smaller component. Are there particular kids or particular people who are more at risk, like developmentally delayed kids? You know what? I hate telling people this. There is no group that's more or less predatable to a predator. One of the misconceptions I get a lot is about girls versus boys. Are young women and female children, are they more likely than male children? The answer is no. 
male children have just the same statistic as female children. Society has created an issue for male victims to be able to come forward and share their stories. Also, there's a lot more shame involved in that. And there's a lot more other social constructs that constrict boys being willing to disclose over girls. I know that parents' knowledge about this and their attitudes, especially their judgment, are important. What can parents do at home to teach their kids about healthy relationships and boundaries? Are there ways that parents' attitudes can keep kids from sharing about this or just making their kids feel comfortable sharing? The one statistic I do see that chances of child sexual abuse do increase is actually in divorced families. When a child comes from a divorced family, for predators, that does usually spark a chord with them, which is why it's so imperative that even if you're co-parenting, a lot of the things have to stay the same. There's a few things I always say. One, we have to teach our kids about their personal zones. You don't have to call them their sexual organs. You don't ever have to use the word sex or sexual to talk to your kids about their personal safety. So it's very important. Sometimes we say bathing suit areas, but that can still be confusing for kids. One of the things I always teach parents too is that in a legal setting, it's very, very helpful if the child actually knows the anatomically correct verbiage for their own genitalia. Also knowing that where the poop comes out is different, where your pee comes out. These very toddler-like things is important to teach any child, especially as they're gaining awareness of their own bodies. And we all know that, you know, kids are very curious about their own bodies. And if we in any way try to be uncomfortable ourselves with that, it the child can easily pick up that it's something they shouldn't talk about either or they should feel in some way secretive about. So that's why I don't like saying these are your secret spots or these are your private spots. We want to say that these are your personal areas. And this is something that parents think you only talk to your teenager about consent when they're talking about kissing or sex. That is very untrue. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. I have my three favorite examples. One is no forced contact. This has been widely shared more over the last couple of years, which I'm so grateful for. But this is the idea of go hug your grandpa, he loves you. Go give aunt this person a kiss. Go hug them, go kiss them, go lay with them, go sit with them. These ideas, and although as a parent, we have the best of intentions, unfortunately, blurring those lines and telling the child that it's appropriate and that I'm demanding that they show physical touch or affection with an elder can lead them to believe that when they're told by any other elder to do that as well, that that could be appropriate. And so we want to say, do you feel comfortable? What would you, well, how would you like to say goodbye? Right? And sometimes I'll even say, what about a high five? Or knuckles? You know, how do you want to do it? I know my kid well enough that I can kind of now tell what she's comfortable with and what she's not. The second thing is stop means stop. And this is so hard in families with multiple children. As a mom of a single child, I find this to be very easy, but I have heard feedback from clients that this is a much harder thing to do. But stop means stop is so important. It even can go down to when they're really young, this idea of tickling. 
Everyone thinks that tickling is so fun, and it is. And some kids love it, but some kids hate it. Also, there's this idea subconsciously in the child's mind is that tickling is also this thing where the kids usually say, ah, stop, stop, stop. But then they still kind of want it to happen. If the child says stop, I say stop. Hands off. This means the same for wrestling, rumbling around on the floor, the kids playing with each other's kids. If the word stop is used, all hands go up, everybody freeze. This is an easy way to tell them that they're in charge of consent about anything that happens to their body. And it can actually empower the children to really feel like they're in command of what's happening to them. When a child yells, stop, stop, and nobody stops, the stops get quieter, not louder. And so one of the things we wanna teach them from so young on is that stop means stop. Also, you can use that in the same way with parenting. If your kid's doing something and you say stop, hands go up, they can they easily quickly learn, stop, hands go up. It's a really quick and easy way to just give them autonomy and safety over their own body and consent. And we're not talking about sex. This has nothing to do with sexual contact, right? It's just putting this power into their hands so small. But they really are in charge of their bodies. And we have to teach them those skills so that when they're 16 and they say, stop, and someone isn't listening, it sparks that thing of, okay, I'm in danger. I'm going to yell stop louder, not get quieter. The third thing that I always talk about with families is secrets. Secrets may seem harmless. Kids struggle, and we know this, with the idea of secrets. They struggle thinking their friends are keeping secrets from them. They see about secrets in shows and on television and in movies. They see secrets sort of happening. What we want to portray is good secrets. This is a good secret. Let's keep this to ourselves. It's a happy thing, like a present or a vacation. These are good secrets. And you can separate it into good secrets and bad secrets. Bad secrets make you feel bad inside. Good secrets make you excited. If it's something that makes you feel bad inside, that means you're supposed to tell. If it gives you an icky feeling, that's, it's okay to break that secret. It's okay to advocate for yourself through a bad secret. But starting really young with my daughter, we just talked about, oh, I have a surprise. And now we use the word surprise instead of secret. And I just think that if we think about these things kind of normally, it's really kind of natural to integrate it into your parenting style. But those are my three things. No forced contact. Stop means stop. And no secrets. What you're sharing teaches kids that they have boundaries and they're allowed to have self-esteem and, and argue for themselves in, in any context. That's great. Right. And so it's not just abuse related. I think these are great things just in general to teach children. It's just, it's something to empower them. And unfortunately, it's just from doing work in this field for so long. Before I was a parent, I heard so many stories. But the thing is, I realized I can't protect her from people. I can. I do my due diligence. I ask the hard questions. I call the camps. I do all that stuff. I survey the schools. I research everything. But at the end of the day, the one person that's going to protect her is her. As much as we would like to put our kids in a bubble, at some point, we have to set them off in the world. 
And we don't just one day kick them out of the nest and hope they can fly. The process of becoming independent means we have to trust our kids to spend time with other people away from us. And there are things you can do, actions you can take to make that time away from you safer. That's next. What should parents look for in the culture and practices at institutions that prevent abuse? What are the questions you should ask? When we're looking into anything, whether it's a preschool, your child's public school, after-school care, jiu music, piano, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, who knows what it is, and even your church and your Sunday services, there are always questions that are okay to ask. We let society tell us that we're not supposed to ask the hard things. But if no one's asking the hard things, these institutions aren't being held accountable to do the work. So by asking these questions, by making them feel uncomfortable, if they don't know the answers to very simple questions, like, is every single one of your employees background checked? Now, I will say, this does not prevent a predator from being there. This is not a question that should be relied upon. What you then ask for, you can ask for a copy of their employee handbook. You can also ask if they're trained mandated reporters on site and how many mandated reporters there are per kid. But in reality, these institutions aren't set up as safe places for children. They're set up as capitalistic or faith-based where there's a different motivation other than keeping your child safe. So what are they doing? And then how are they also trying to mitigate it? I also say, if there's never been a disclosure of child abuse in an organization that's been around for a long time, that's a problem. If you can look at an institution that's been around for 100 years and no one's ever disclosed, the statistics on that don't pan out. There's no way to predator-proof an organization by hiring processes but there's a way to do it in the follow-up, in the way that it's handled, in the way that it's taken care of. So normally in institutions, we hear about a case and then a cover-up. We hear about circling the wagons. We hear about the kid having to deal with a consequence of their report. Also, a lot of times children aren't believed. My one thing is we always listen to the child. We have a lot of what we call recantations where a child will take back the allegation, but that doesn't mean they said it wasn't true. They took back what they said because the consequences that were facing them, the stress, the pressure, the bullying from either their family, the victim, or the, or the predator or the institution is keeping them from wanting to tell the truth again. What are the signs that a child is being abused in school, daycare, church? When a child has encountered some sort of trauma, we always see the effects. And I tell people to think about it like a car accident. If a child's been in a car accident, they might be afraid. They might not want to ride in the car again. They may want to bring a stuffed animal. They may exhibit some fear and trepidation. Every time you break or they hear someone break, they might jump and skitter. These kinds of things. And they happen to adults that have been in car accidents. If you've been in a car accident recently and something happens, you jolt, you shake, something changes inside your brain that annoys that didn't used to bother you before and now bothers you. 
a lot of us have the privilege socioeconomically to be very involved in our children's lives. We usually know them back to front. And when something changes in their behavior, it's always a marker of something else. With child sexual abuse, one thing that we see is usually resisting and not wanting to go to the location where the predator is making them feel uncomfortable. This could also be someone that's potentially grooming the child because it doesn't necessarily mean that they were abused already, but someone is making the child feel uncomfortable. And the one thing I always say about children is they are so good at identifying who the bad guy is in a movie before anybody else. For child sexual abuse, we see a lot of regression. We'll see usually a type of regression, be it behavioral, be it verbal, be it potty training. A lot of the time, the potty training, some sort of issue comes up where they've either regressed, they started peeing in bed at night. There's some other things that usually always pop up that's pretty universal in the under 10. Under 10, that's pretty set. Behavioral changes when they're teenagers make it more difficult because they're constantly changing their behaviors as a teenager. It's one of the things that makes them lovely infuriating is because they're determining who they are. They're speaking up for themselves. But what I'm talking about is any sort of regression, anything that they maybe really loved before and then said, I don't like it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. Well, why? Explain to me the reason. If they can't come up with a reason and just say, because I don't want to, I said no. That should tip you off. that There's something bigger going on that they don't feel comfortable talking about. And it's really about having those open and honest communications and talking to your child. The types of regression that Loxie is talking about don't have to be because there is potential abuse going on. It's just a red flag that your child needs something. Figuring out what they need, that's not easy. But at least you know you have to do something. And what you need to do is be supportive, open, and accepting. Say something like, it seems like you're going through something difficult. And then be quiet. When you see regression in behavior or your child not wanting to go somewhere or do something they seemed to love before, there's a reason. Maybe it's a bully. Maybe they were embarrassed in front of their friends. They didn't perform well. Their pants fell down. It could be anything. But this is how you may get a tip off and know to be the one person who loves your child unconditionally and let them know you care and you love them. But don't push too hard. The less you push, the more likely it is they will tell you what's really going on. Now, what about if another person's child tells you something? It could be your child's friend, a child in your scout troop, any child you come into contact with. What if they disclose something concerning? What should you do? Don't freak out. We're going to tell you what to do. But also what you should do is don't freak out. Here, Loxie explains more eloquently. If something does happen, and this isn't just regards to a child abuse disclosure, this can be a bullying disclosure at school. This can be inappropriate talking by the teacher. It can be anything that you can think of in the world or that a sibling is doing something to them. There's some sort of interfamily bullying, anything else. When a child discloses something to you that seems like they're having a hard time saying it, the first thing you need to do is take a deep breath and breathe and say, thank you for telling me. As parents, we easily take on our children's trauma onto ourselves 
and it feels like a problem that we need to fix right away. Who did this? What are you talking about? Where was it? No, where, what? You know, and we're reacting in this sort of way, which is the child's worst nightmare is how you're gonna respond. The first thing as parents that we can say and act in the most trauma-informed way for our children is to stop, take a breath, and not react. We say, thank you for telling me. That usually opens up the child to continue talking. So it's the same thing if a child comes home, your teenager girl comes home and says, I have a boyfriend. Thank you for telling me. Right? And it's so hard to do because you want to go, hell, that creep down the street. (laughs) You know, we want to react. We want to pop off. But honestly, the best thing we can do, and I think this is great for all interpersonal communication. If somebody comes to you with a problem, we have to take a breath. We have to stop. And you let them continue speaking. It can be one of the most powerful tools. But if we start to react, if we start to overcompensate, if our own anxiety comes out, this was my worst nightmare. I knew this would happen. I did it. That child begins to feel like what they did was wrong or what they said was wrong. We haven't validated them and sat with them and just congratulated them on having the nerve to say something. Because as anyone who's experienced abuse or kept a secret for 20 years or an old family secret or something they felt shame about, working up the courage to disclose is one of the hardest things they'll go through. We actually call it compounding trauma. Because if a child is harmed in any way, and then you add upon that the first time they had to disclose, they had to work up a lot of courage to get to that first time. Then it's based on how that first person reacts the likelihood that that child will keep going and keep talking or potentially say, just kidding, I didn't mean it, right? Those are recantations. They're not necessarily saying it didn't happen. They don't want to talk about it anymore. And so how do we set children up to be able to respond and correspond with us in a way that we don't meet them with where we're at in the conversation? We let them keep continuing the lead of the conversation without taking it over. Some people don't tell their parents though, but they might tell a friend. Is this common? And how should you handle that? So if it's a friend of a a minor, this does happen. Children will disclose at school to their friends that something's happening either at home or at the teacher on campus or the nanny, the person that picked them up from school. Sometimes they will disclose something. When a child discloses to another child or in a group setting, like in a classroom, which actually is very common, The issue there is that most of the time, the child that's hearing the message doesn't actually quite understand the full ramifications of what their peer is telling them. As adults, we tend to panic because we know that this is really bad and we need to do something, right? So I had an incident recently at an elementary school and a child disclosed out loud at circle time in pre-K an incident that was happening inside of their own home inside of their familial home. The school did a great thing, which was the teacher said, thank you for sharing, and then moved on to the, and said, you know, we should follow back up on that after the circle time, and then kept going in the circle time. That gave the kid a chance to breathe. It gave the other kids to not escalate the other children in the room to to then go, if the teacher starts going, I need to call, I need to, right? 
the children would have traumatized that instance where ultimately they would have been like, okay, and not known it. So there's a lot of ways in which how we respond caters to that. But if you're a parent of a child who comes home from school and says, this was talked about today, someone told me, the best thing you can do is immediately tell the mandated reporter at your school, the person you're closest to. It does not have to be the person at the top. It's the person you're closest to. And you ask them, are you a mandated reporter? If they say no, can you say, who else here is a mandated reporter? You're within your confidentiality to just ask that question. Otherwise, you can call and report it. I encourage, regardless of you telling the mandated reporter at the institution, you still do your due diligence and call the child abuse hotline, the police. If you think the child is in immediate danger, that their life is at stake or something is dangerous to them or that they're in some sort of a threat. If a gun was mentioned, anything like that, that's an immediate threat, 911. If it's something that's going on at home that the kid's a little bit vague about, you're not really sure, calling CPS does not trigger anything negative for the family. And a lot of times it's able to be weeded out if it is, but of having a record of calls about disclosures that a child makes actually can work in that child's best interest down the line. So saying, well, somebody, he disclosed at his school, he disclosed at soccer, he disclosed to his aunt, and he disclosed to this person, when it finally gets to the time of having a real investigation, all of those can be used as evidence. Don't be afraid to say something. The worst thing you can do is turn your head and look away. That's how predators get away with victimizing multiple children. Someone saw something and didn't say anything in every case. Children aren't given the autonomy to make their own police report or to advocate for their own safety. As parents, the the responsibility falls on us to do our best to get our children's voices heard. And by doing that, we're the first person they want to hear from. And so as a way to doing that, it's really about learning. There's a great website called Mama Bear. And this is for both any parents, but the website's called Mama Bear. It gives great age-appropriate ways to talk to your children about consent without mentioning anything about sex. Also, it gives really age-appropriate and I think pretty conservative ways to talk to your children about sex when that time does come or when there is anything in their zeitgeist that's talking about that that's when you have that conversation. You should be prepared before they bring it up. How do we pre-prepare for those hard conversations when the time arises? Also, by parents initiating difficult conversations with our children and not our children coming to ask us, by us telling them before they need to ask us, it makes us be a knowledgeable person to them. It shows them that we care. It also shows them that this is not a faux pas topic to talk about. And it may make you uncomfortable when you're 13 and you don't want to talk about it. Knowing when to talk to kids and how to talk to them about their bodies, personal boundaries, all of these topics are confusing. And the Mama Bear Effect website has incredible resources. They call them Rock the Talk for every single age, down to toddlers and even for special needs kids. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about how to protect kids from predators, honestly, one of the best ways is to educate yourself by watching documentaries. 
also, there's many good documentaries that you can watch. I think that these really help kind of open eyes. There's one, I'll do a shameless plug, a documentary that I was able to work on and be a part of was called Hillsong Mega Church Exposed. This is specifically about child abuse that happened inside of a religious institution. And then the decades of abuse and wrongdoing that concurrently followed along with this organization because its inception was founded on child abuse. And so how that kept going and all of the things we found out about it, it's a very good case study in how, what can happen if something like this isn't stopped. There's also Leaving Neverland is the Michael Jackson documentary. It's a long, hard watch. However, I find it to be insanely important because I've asked people to watch it And the first thing I hear about is how could those mothers let this happen? People so quickly want to put judgment on the parent who we see in that film is also being groomed by the predator themselves. And it's very obvious. And if you can watch it with that eye of how could have I gotten groomed in a situation without vilifying the parent? There's other ones called The Keepers is a great one about the Catholic Church. Scout's Honor was just released on Netflix. Allen versus Pharaoh about Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. Athlete A is a great one on uh, Larry Nasser, as well as there's a one that a lot of people have watched that's on Netflix. It was called Abducted in Plain Sight. And this was a predator that was half institutional and half familial relationship, but that was able to groom both parents so effectively. It's hard to not judge those parents, but what you really have to say is, How do I make sure my boundaries are up? That we are a predator-proof household. The first step you can take now is to be transparent and don't shy away from asking about child abuse. What is your school doing to prevent child abuse? What does your religious organization do that makes reporting something fishy difficult? Are there boundaries or barriers that allow predators to continue? What is your child's sports team's policy about coaches contacting students? Ask these questions. If you don't, nobody else is. Even though large-scale abuse cases have come to light in the past 10 years, nothing has changed. There is still a culture of silence and protection, and our kids are sheltered by us because we're not talking about it. Now you've learned that you don't have to talk directly about abuse with your kids to give them the confidence and the tools to speak up when they don't feel comfortable. And you also know how to react when your child tells you they're dating someone. For more from The Pediatrician Next Door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.